when the scripture is read, they say, this is the word of the Lord, and then the church responds, thanks be to God. I think we should respond to that after we read the word of the Lord, nice and loud. Thanks be to God. Let's practice now. Thanks be to God. Amen. Okay, here's the word of the Lord. From Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 28. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How's everybody doing? Um, like I said, I am Heath McLaughlin. Can I move this so it's not right in my way? So when I see y'all, there's not a microphone uh, right there. Before I get started, I was handed an announcement that did not make it into the bulletin, and I don't want to forget it at the end. So here we go. College and Young Professionals launch. I guess it's appropriate I'm making that announcement. Uh, is at the Snyder's house today. 
if you want to come and need info, and I, I quote because I would never say this, hit the info table on your way out. <laughs> so, college and young professionals lunch today. Uh, hit, hit the, intern, or the uh, info table. Uh, I'm assuming someone will be there that knows what's going on. Uh, as I said, I'm Heath McLawn. I'm the RUF campus minister at UNC Charlotte. And first off, I want to thank you as a church. If y'all don't know this, y'all support RUF as a ministry. RUF is this kind of, I mean, they talked about it a little. It's, we're kind of this weird thing where I'm in town, but I'm also a missionary. So I have to raise 100% of my support. And Howard told me to do this, so I'm going to do it. If you would like to give money towards RUF at UNC Charlotte, please, please see me afterwards and I will help you figure out how to do that. Uh, but I do want to thank you all as a church uh, for your support, both in prayer and financially. I'll be around after. I've got a uh, notepad you can sign up on for mailing lists. If you just want to talk about RUF or ask questions, I'll be around. Um, it's always good to be here at Christ Central. Uh, that last song is actually one of the reasons I both love and fear coming to Christ Central a little bit uh, because I have absolutely no rhythm whatsoever, no musical talent. And I always end up being that guy that when people start clapping, I have to put everything that I am into staying on beat if I stop for a second, I'm that one guy who's perfectly offbeat the whole time, just clapping and doesn't know what's going on. And so I love the songs like that, but I also fear songs like that for the very same reason. Um, I know when I get Charles' email asking me to preach, you guys are getting desperate for Howard and Charles to have a day off. Um, and I was actually running a little late this morning. I wasn't sure. I, I was ready. I go into my closet to get ready, and I was like, I don't know what to wear to preach at Christ Central anymore. I mean, last time I was here, Howard, I think, was in blue jeans, an unbuttoned shirt, and white sneakers. And Charles has started wearing a clerical collar. <laughs> and I don't know what's between that. So this is what you get. I panicked on the way out and grabbed a blazer. It's in the car. <laughs> I decided it was too hot. Um, being a campus minister, I get to do everything that Howard and Charles do here, but I get to do it on the campus at UNC Charlotte. But summer's kind of a weird time for us. Students aren't really around. And so often in the summer, I get to go and preach at churches like this, and I really enjoy that. And what I do is I use it as a time to help me get ready for the fall. Last summer when I was asked to do this, y'all got a sermon on dating. <laughs> this one might be a little more relevant to most of you. Um, and that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to use it to help me get ready for the fall. And what we're going to do this fall is I'm going to be preaching a series on the New Testament book of Romans. So today we're going to drop right into our fall series on the book of Romans at sermon number four in chapter three. And y'all should feel pretty lucky because a couple weeks ago I, did a, I preached at another church and they got the bad news of Romans. So I just blasted them for like 35 minutes and they kind of walked out. 
uh, y'all at least get the good news. Um, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 today. Let me say this. As I was preparing for this, I came across one scholar who called part of our text today possibly the most important paragraph ever written. So no pressure at all. So would you all pray with me as we dive in? The Lord would bless our time. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we praise you that you're God, that you love us, that you care for us, that you give us your word, that you saw fit to have it written down. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us during this time, especially me. How unworthy am I to approach a text like this? Lord, we just pray your blessing upon this. Open ears and minds and hearts to the good news of your gospel. Amen. That's another reason I love being here. I get amens. I never get that from college students. So thank you, especially over here. Howard's wife always gets some from her. Um, as we get started, I want to take you back with me to a college spring break trip. Uh, some friends and I went backpacking in the Smoky Mountains. And the first night, we went to this long, old, abandoned tunnel that went through a mountain. It was the kind of tunnel that was so long and dark that you couldn't see the light at the other end. Because we went at night, obviously, because we're college guys. And we get there, and naturally, what do college guys do when they see a big, creepy hole in the ground? We go into it. And after a while of walking in, it's so dark that you can put your hand right there and you cannot see your hand in front of your face. As we go farther and farther in, the, in or the light from the entrance gets fainter and fainter. Eventually, just this kind of darkish gray spot kind of out there and you, you think that's the way you came in. And then we take another step or two. And we're in this eerie, complete darkness. You can't see the other end. You can't see the light that you came in. There's no light, absolute darkness. And we're standing there. And I don't know this is happening. Someone takes a flashlight out of their pocket and turns it on. And it wasn't even that strong of a flashlight, but in that complete darkness, it was blinding. It was like staring at the sun when they flicked it on. And I tell you that story because I really do think something similar is going on in our text this morning. So far in Romans, what Paul's been doing is he's been describing humanity's state in sin. And it is bad. It is dark. It is desperate. Paul says that the immoral, bad people of the world, they're going to face the judgment of God for their evil. And then in chapter 2, he comes along and says, even the good moral people are actually judgmental hypocrites. Even the religious people don't live up to the standard either. Everyone, Jews, Gentiles, good, bad, everyone will face the wrath and judgment of God. 
everybody is hopeless and lost. And what I think Paul is doing is he is walking us into that tunnel of darkness and despair of what humanity is like in our own sin. In our passage today, Paul takes us those last couple steps. Until we can no longer see a way out, there is no light, no hope, complete darkness. Then we get to verse 21. And it's as if Paul turns on the brightest light of the gospel and it shines all the brighter because of the darkness that has surrounded it. It's beautiful. It's lovely because of the darkness that went before. And so what I want to do this morning is pretty simple. I want to look at the darkness of sin, quickly the darkness of sin, and then the light of the gospel. I mean, in chapter 1, Paul talks about the bad and the evil people. Verse 18 in chapter 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And then he just goes into this long list of evil and immorality. And then Paul, he just blasts people who think they're better than that. He blasts the moral people, the religious people. Then we get to our text, and I want to emphasize two things about what humanity is like in sin. And the first is the universality of sin. And did you notice that list? These are all Old Testament quotations that Paul is giving us. The words all, no one, and none appear at least 10 times in this passage. Everyone in the whole world from the fall of Adam on with the exception of Jesus Christ is included in this. Verse 9 says, everyone is under sin. The term used there is actually a legal term for citizenship. Paul's saying that we are citizens of sin. And we're all in the exact same state. And because of that, we're separated from God. But then the second thing I want us to see about sin is the totality of it. I mean, this list, it's horrible. And it includes everything. I mean, no one is righteous. That's our legal standing before God. Nobody has ever kept the standard. No one understands. Our minds are tainted by sin as well. No one seeks after God. Our motivations are messed up. All have turned away. Our wills have even turned away from God. And then you get all this about tongues and lips and the venom of asps. Our mouths. Verse 17 and 18, we're swift to shed blood. Our relationships with each other are poisoned. Then verse 18, there is no fear of God. Our relationship with God is completely severed. Our minds, our hearts, our wills, relationships, every single part of us has been poisoned by sin. This is what theologians would call the doctrine of total depravity. Not that we're all as bad or evil as we could be. Not that we're all out there causing chaos and killing people. But that every single part of us in some way, in some form or fashion, is tainted by this sin. This is mankind in sin. 
every one of us and every part of us is affected. And because of that, there is this wrath and this judgment of God against sin waiting on each and every one of us. Sorry, I've got a tickle or something back there. <coughs> Excuse me. What Paul is doing in this is he's leading us those final few steps. He's leading us into that complete darkness and despair of sin. There is no way out. There's only helplessness and hopelessness for mankind in sin. But then we get to verse 21. But now, Paul turns on the floodlight, so to speak. He shows another way. After two, after two chapters of just bad news, there's that tiny little conjunction, and I'm not a grammar person, so I had to ask my wife, but that might be the greatest conjunction in the history of mankind. Darkness, death, despair, evil, there's nothing we can do about it. Helpless, hopeless, but, but there is a way out. There is the light of the gospel. And it's so beautiful. I could spend so much time here, and y'all would hate me for it, because it would be 6 o'clock tonight by the time we got done. My favorite old preacher, he died back in the 80s. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a British guy. I preached in London. He had this Friday night service, and he preached on the book of Romans for 16 years. It took him 11 sermons to get through our text. This is some of the richest stuff in the Bible. I mean, it's like looking at a precious diamond. We could spend hours looking at each particular facet of it. But today what I want to do is give you a picture of the beauty of the whole diamond, the whole gospel. And I want to do this by looking at some key words that explain this gospel of Jesus Christ, but show us its beauty and its greatness. So we're just going to kind of work our way through this paragraph, and I'm going to highlight some of these words that are so precious. So we'll start right at the beginning, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God. Righteousness is a pretty simple concept, really means keeping the rules, clearing the bar. It's a legal standing. Doesn't sound too bad. But as it said in verse 10, that before God, the judge of the universe, no one is righteous. And I think just for emphasis, Paul throws in, no, not one. None of us can be righteous on our own. None of us can clear that bar. We can't work hard enough. We can't do enough good stuff or give away enough money to great causes to clear that bar of righteousness. But Paul says there's a different kind of righteousness. It is a righteousness of God, and it is apart 
from the law. It is apart from us working as hard as we can trying to clear that bar. I will never be able to dunk a basketball. I don't care how hard I work. I will never be able to do it. We can't do this, but Paul says there's this righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness apart from working, from trying to keep the rules. And Paul has gone into great detail to prove that we can't actually do that. We can't do it on our own. But what's going on is that now a righteousness is being made available to mankind. A righteousness that does clear that bar. It secures our legal standing before God the Father, before the judge of the universe. It is the righteousness of God himself. And it has been manifested. That means it has been made clear to us in the historical person of Jesus Christ. And Paul says it was there in the Old Testament. It was hinted at in shadows in the law and the prophets. But now through Jesus, this righteousness has been gloriously manifested. And what this doesn't mean is that now we're magically righteous. That now we magically start keeping the standard. No, it's the righteousness of God. It is a righteousness from God made available to us not through keeping the law or any sort of merit or earning it on our part. But the question remains, how do we get access to this righteousness? And down in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness of God is accessible to us through faith in Jesus. I want to be clear that faith is not just some kind of intellectual assent to something. I believe a lot of things about stuff. Faith is not a belief about Jesus. It is faith in Jesus. I have faith in chairs, generally speaking. I have faith about chairs, but I have a faith in a chair when I actually trust it and sit down on it and know that it's not going to collapse. That is faith in something. It is trusting in. But what in particular are we supposed to have faith in? In verse 25, it says, faith in Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. It is faith, it is trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is faith and trust in his blood shed for us on our behalf. It is Jesus taking our place. We should have been on that cross. We deserve that. We deserve that wrath and judgment. And Jesus is taking it instead of us. And I want to be clear here. What saves us is not our faith. Our faith is merely instrumental here. And think of it this way. Last Christmas, uh, I was in Chattanooga, and I went to this indoor rock climbing gym with my brother. And they had these self-belay devices. 
so that if you fell, it's like this giant, it kind of looked like a measuring tape actually hanging from the ceiling. But if you fell, it would catch you and you wouldn't like splat on the floor. Um, but when you get to the top, they tell you, just let go and kick off the wall, which sounds crazy. And then the device is supposed to catch you and lower you down. But the first time I got to the top, I was actually like, I had this weird feeling. Usually I'm not afraid of heights or anything like that. I had this weird feeling. Is it actually going to hold? Would I go splat on the mats below if I actually let go and kicked off? I actually even started climbing down a little bit. So I wasn't quite as far. And my brother's laughing at me and making fun of me. Eventually, I let go, and it caught me, and I went, I went down to the bottom. But later that day, I was supremely confident that the thing would catch me. So I get to the top, it's like, poof, out into space, and just let it catch me. And, and down I would go. But now what saved me from going splat? It wasn't my weak faith that the rope would hold. It wasn't my supremely confident faith that the rope would hold. It was the rope itself. It was the object of my faith. And so having the strongest faith in the world will not save us. The object of our faith, faith in Jesus Christ, that is what saves us. Notice you can have strong faith in the wrong things. I could have had very strong faith in my ability to jump from the top to the bottom and not break something in me. That would have been a wrong faith. Faith in anything except for Jesus is wrong faith. And it will not save us no matter how strong that faith might be. If we're here today and we don't have the strongest faith, and we're struggling, great. We're saved by Jesus, not by gritting our teeth and clenching our fist and trying really, really hard to have more faith. We're here today, if we're here today and our faith is rock solid, that's awesome. But we need to know that that faith does not save us. Jesus does. So faith in Jesus Christ. Next, as we move through our passage, I want to talk about this word. It's such a crucial word. I'm sure you hear it here. Verse 24 says, and we are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified. Justification is this big theological word, and we need to know it. It means to be declared righteous, as if God is publishing in the newspaper or a billboard for all to see, saying, that guy, that girl, she is righteous. She has cleared that bar. Not because of anything she's actually done, but because she has my righteousness. It is a declaration. It is a one-time thing. God declaring once and for all, for all eternity, that someone is righteous. And notice what this is not. It is not us getting our stuff together first. It is not cleaning ourselves up, stopping our addictions or whatever it is, and then coming to God. It is faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's this public declaration 
justified. Justification. That we are righteous. That we are credited with the very righteousness of God. And two things happen in justification. First, our sins are placed upon Jesus Christ. And he bears their weight, God's wrath, the punishment and judgment that they deserve. He bears that to the cross. And then secondly, Christ's righteousness is reckoned to our account. It's not that we actually are righteous. It's that Christ was righteous and we get credit for it. This is what theologians call double imputation. Our sins are imputed to Christ, reckoned to Christ. Christ wasn't actually sinful, but our sins are reckoned to him. And then his righteousness is reckoned, credited to us. So when God sees us, if we are in Christ, what God sees is not all of our sin and mess and all of the ways we've gone wrong. God sees the righteousness of Christ. I want to be clear here. I want to clear up this tendency among us to think that the gospel just means that our sins are forgiven. It is so much more than that. I mean, that's true. But Paul and the rest of the Bible is saying that we're credited with the very righteousness of God, Christ's perfect righteousness. It is available to us. I mean, to be forgiven and not go to hell is actually fantastically awesome when you think about it. Because that's what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. But think of it this way. If I'm in massive debt, let's say millions or billions of dollars, and there's the greatest party that the world has ever known being thrown by God himself, but there's a cost of admission. Being forgiven my debt, not being in debt millions of dollars is fantastic but I still don't have the cost of admission. And what justification is saying is that because of the righteousness of God imputed to us, the righteousness of Jesus given to us, we have that cost of admission. Just being forgiven just gets us back to zero. Guys, this is just, it's beautiful to behold. In the gospel, the heart of the gospel is that we are justified in Jesus Christ. Verse 24 continues. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Some of your translations might say, instead of redemption, ransomed. And whereas righteousness, we said, was a legal term, justification is a legal term. Redemption is a commercial term. It's a marketplace term. And what Paul is talking about is that back in the New Testament, when people got really, really into debt, how they would get out of it, they couldn't just declare chapter 11 they couldn't file for bankruptcy. 
what they would do was that they would actually sell themselves into slavery to pay off their debt. <coughs> Excuse me. But then sometimes a relative or maybe someone else would come along and they would pay the redemption price or the ransom price to set them free. And back in verse 9, Paul said that we are under sin. We're citizens of sin. Just as accurately, we are slaves to sin. And then through Christ Jesus, we have been redeemed from the power of sin, the consequences of sin, the dominion, and the slavery of sin. When we think about ourselves, I think we tend to have a pretty high view of ourselves, don't we? We're pretty good. But God is actually telling us in this that we are so bad that God himself, Jesus Christ, had to descend to earth and die for us that we might be redeemed. We're so bad that the redemption price, the ransom price is actually God himself. But in Jesus, in his cross, we have been redeemed. And the last word or phrase I want to talk about is verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation. It's not a word you hear used every day anymore. Um, it's kind of weird. And what it means is to appease or to placate or to avert one's wrath. And how Paul started this whole section of the bad news, the darkness, in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness. I mean, throughout chapters 1 and 2 and the early part of 3, terms like God's judgment and wrath, they just keep popping up. And God's wrath is not like our wrath. When we think of wrath, we think kind of fly off the handle angry. But God's wrath is this settled, consistent, holy wrath. It is hatred and anger towards sin. And as hopeless sinners, that is what we face. But verse 25 says that Christ, by his blood, is our propitiation. By his blood, that wrath is turned away. He turns away the wrath of God from us by absorbing it himself. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because at that very moment, Jesus Christ is sin for us. And in his settled, holy anger and wrath towards sin, God cannot be near it. So God turns away from Jesus.
In his love for his people, God himself did what we couldn't do, what no amount of sacrifice on our part could ever do. That's why all the Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated daily, monthly, yearly, because no amount of animal sacrifice could ever turn away God's anger. John Stott said it this way. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. God's anger and his wrath have been propitiated. They have been turned away from us in Christ Jesus. The last two things quickly. What have we done to earn all this or to deserve it? Verse 24 again, we're justified by his grace as a gift. We have done absolutely nothing. Grace is often described as unmerited favor. But in the case of God, I don't think that goes far enough. We've actually deserved God's disfavor, his anger, his wrath, and his punishment. And yet, because of his love for us, for his people, by his grace, we are justified. God's anger is turned away. By grace as a gift, the very righteousness of God is reckoned to our account. But lastly, who is this wonderful news for? Verse 22 again, for all who believe. There's no distinction in sin. Paul made that abundantly clear. Just in case we forgot, he said, for all have sinned and fallen short. There's no distinction in sin, but there's also no distinction in the gospel. There's no racial distinction. There's no ethnic distinction. There's no sin that is too far gone distinction. But it's not everyone is saved regardless of who they are or what they do or what they believe in. There is a parameter. You must believe. It is for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Are we addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography or sex or work? The gospel is for all who believe. Maybe we've grown up in the church and are bored by it. The gospel is for all who believe. Maybe there's a deep, dark secret that no one knows about us, and we're scared to death that if someone found out, they would run for the hills away from us. The gospel is for all who believe. Do we think God could never forgive us? Never love us? Have we run so far away from God into reckless and dangerous choices that we believe God would never take us back? The gospel is for all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and his shed blood for us. 
we are justified. We're redeemed from the slavery of sin. God's anger towards us because of our sin has been turned away because we have a substitute in Jesus Christ. Earlier I said that the gospel was like a diamond with many facets. No matter which facet you look at, it's absolutely beautiful. I've only ever bought one diamond in my life, uh, my wife's engagement ring. If you've bought a diamond before, did you notice how the jeweler displays it? They get this black kind of felt cloth or pad and set it down on the case and then put the diamond on top of it. It seems to sparkle a lot more with that black backdrop. It seems to be more radiant, more beautiful against that background. And the same is true of the gospel. It's only really good news to us when we understand the incredible bad news. And I think it was Tim Keller who said, it's okay, you're worse than you ever thought or you ever dared dream. But... In Jesus Christ, you are more loved and accepted and forgiven than you could ever dare imagine. In the gospel, and Jesus himself are infinitely beautiful because of the dark backdrop of our sin. If you're here today and you've been a Christian for years, maybe even decades, it is these truths that can snap us out of our Christian boredom. Seeing these truths again, studying in them. I love the idea of marinating in them, getting them as deep down into our bones as we can. That will snap us out of our Christian boredom. That will change us. We never, ever get past these fundamental truths of the gospel. We need to go back to it again and again and again. If you're here today and you have not yet believed, if you do not yet have faith in Jesus Christ, you might have some faith about Jesus Christ. I would pray, and I am sure Howard and Charles and the elders would as well, that no matter how weak or strong, you would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I promise you this, you will never once hear any greater news than God himself taking our place on the cross and accepting our deserved punishment. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It is the greatest news that the world has ever heard. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know why you love us. We're full of sin and darkness. And we've turned away from you in thought and word and deed. And yet, you love your people. 
in your love for your people, you have seen fit to draw us to you, to make a way when there was not one, to shine the light of your gospel into the darkness that is our sin. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our substitute, who by the shedding of his blood, we're forgiven. Your wrath has been turned away. We're even credited with your righteousness. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. We thank you that in him we are yours again. And we are no longer separated from you. It's in Jesus' precious and holy and righteous name that we pray. Amen.